Welcome to episode 59 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. You are listening to the Empowering Ability Podcast and making expectations for what is possible for people with developmental disabilities. Here is your host, my brother, Elba. Hey folks, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Just want to give you a quick update on what's been going on with Empowering Ability before we jump into the podcast here. (laughs) The podcast schedule has been a little bit slower than I would like, but uh, we're still rolling here today with our episode with Dr. Margaret Newberry-Jones talking about sexuality and, and disability. But I just wanted to quickly update you on the Empowering Ability Academy and Uh, We ran the very first Empowering Ability Academy to really help uh, families to create their plan and their vision for what the best possible life um, could look like, could be for their loved one, and to start to take action and building the really some positive and powerful mindsets to make that happen and to connect with each other and to connect with other families and to learn from what they're doing. And it was just an incredible experience. So uh, I'm excited to run that again. And there's going to be an opportunity coming up here in the fall of 2019. I'm aiming for a September uh, launch. So keep your eyes peeled for for that. But uh, an exciting opportunity to be a part of Empowering Ability Academy uh, coming up here in the fall of September of 2019. 2019. All right, so let's talk about today's podcast. So as I mentioned, our guest is Dr. Margaret Newberry-Jones. And in the podcast, uh, she gives me permission just to, to roll with Margaret. So it makes it a little bit easier to say. And we get into this great conversation around what do self-advocates really need to know about sexual health or sexuality and disability? What do families need to know? What do supporters need to know? What do organizations need to need to consider around sexual health and intellectual um, or developmental disability? And we get into some questions around, you know, why is knowing the language of our bodies so important? Uh, she talks about the question of how do I go find a partner, right? This being a common question that she gets from her clients with IDDs. Uh, what's the role of a paid supporter in all of this? And we get into a really interesting conversation near the end of the podcast of should people with IDDs be allowed to have sex in group homes? Should they be allowed to watch porn? So uh, there's some real uh, interesting conversation at the end of this podcast. I think you're going to enjoy the entirety of it. And just to give you a bit more about uh, Margaret and who she is, what she's all about and her work. So really over the last 25 years, she's been working with um, individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, She worked as a public school special educator for 15 years before beginning work as a consultant and counselor on trauma, sexual health, um, and really focused in on uh, working with clients that have IDDs. 
she works directly with uh, people that have intellectual or developmental disabilities, as well as their families and supporters and organizations. Uh, she provides engaging workshops for families, self-advocates, frontline workers, and other professionals. And uh, maybe most importantly, she's also a family member. So she's uh, just like me, also a sibling. And uh, her sibling has been an incredible teacher to her as well. So without any further ado, let's welcome on Margaret. Hi, Dr. Newberry-Jones. Welcome to the Empowering Ability podcast. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me join you today. Um, call me Margaret. Everybody else does. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Margaret. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to have you on today. And um, excited, maybe also um, <laughs> feeling a little bit nervous or I don't maybe vulnerable. I'm not sure what the right word is at the moment. Uh, around the conversation that we're going to have today, because I think it's one that, um, you know, is becoming more in the open, but has been in the background or, you know, uh, there's been a lot of stigma, is a lot of stigma around the topic and, and that's sexual, uh, sexual health or, or sexuality and, and disability. I guess I'm, I'm curious from your perspective as um, someone who's, who's, you know, studied the topic and very deeply and, um, has these types of conversations day in and day out. You know, why is it so important for us to be talking about sexuality or, or sexual health and, and disability? And is there a difference between sexuality? <laughs> so many questions. Is there a difference between what I'm saying here in terms of sexuality and disability and sexual health and, and disability? Maybe you can start there. And then why is it so important for us? To- sure. Well, I think we tend to use the term sexuality and sexual health um, fairly interchangeably, although you know we could we could dice it down into into the different pieces. But I tend to use them quite interchangeably. Okay. But when we talk about sexuality, is a much bigger thing than just talking about sex. Um, you know, our sexuality includes all different pieces of it. You know, our self esteem, our gender, our gender identity, our orientation, um, our all kinds of different pieces make up, you know, who we are as a sexual being. Um, And is it important to talk about it when we're talking about disability? Absolutely. Because everyone's a sexual being and it doesn't matter whether you have a disability or not. And um, I tend to specialize in working with folks who have some kind of an intellectual or developmental disability. And, um, they are just like you and I and like anyone else. They're sexual beings. And um, there's lots of pieces around disability in general. And so you'll find folks who might specialize in working with folks who have a physical disability. I tend to work with folks who have an intellectual developmental disability. So there's a little bit of a difference there, but it's super important to be talking about it with anybody, whether they have a disability or not. And in North America, we tend not to be very good at talking about sex or sexuality in general. So when I think about sexuality and and disability, I think that it's important to talk about for the same reasons as it's important to talk about with anybody. And that's, you know, the sexual health side of things. So, you know, unplanned pregnancy, uh, uh, sexually transmitted um, infections or diseases. Um, So, you know, I can see that that it's important because, you know, people with an intellectual or developmental disability or physical disability, that we're all human, right? So we're all, all those things still apply. Are there 
additional reasons that we need to be having this conversation when it comes to intellectual or developmental disability? I think one of the big ones that we talk about in my field specifically is around safety, because we know that folks who have um, any kind of disability, but including those with intellectual and developmental disabilities, that folks um, with that with an IDD, as we could shorten it to, um, that they are much more vulnerable to being abused and being taken advantage of. And so safety is a really big piece of it. And certainly prevention of STIs, that's also a safety piece, right? That's a health piece. Um, Unwanted pregnancies, again, is a health piece. But, um, and a lot of it is around, for me, when I work specifically with self-advocates, is around, um, you know, autonomy and being able to make your own decisions and your own choices, but being able to make them from an informed perspective. And not um, feeling like somebody else gets to make those choices for you. And I hear that uh, fairly often from people that there's a lot of conversation when I do workshops or when I talk with families around, um, you know, how is somebody going to be allowed to make those decisions? And the reality is, is that um, we don't have to allow them to make those decisions. That's their right when they're an adult. Right. And um there was a stat that um, somebody shared with me and I don't know the validity of this stat because I tried to drill down on it and it looked like it came from a source that was um, I think doing research on institutions and it said um, I think 83% of women had been sexually abused and 35% of men I'm not sure if you have any stats off the top of your head, but in terms of the risk of sexual abuse for people with an IDD, um, is there anything, do you, do you know the stats on that? There aren't any really good solid stats because, um, when people were institutionalized, it was easier to do this to, to do the data gathering. And so the really sort of clear statistics that are out there and I could, probably guess which which research you may have um, been given the numbers from was done back in the very late 80s early 90s I want to say and so we don't have any really spectacular stats and the stats that are out there right now um, vary between uh, some of the most recent ones that I've seen and they aren't necessarily specific to sexual abuse but in terms of trauma or um, some kind of abuse or misfortune or whatever, um, they can vary between like in different reports from two to sixty percent to ninety percent. So it, it, they they jump all over the map. Um, so we do know in general that it's higher than the general population, but like the general population, we often don't know because people don't tell. People don't um, disclose. And sadly, we don't always listen when someone with an IDD does disclose or tell us because sometimes they don't tell us with words. Sometimes they tell us in different ways. And so it's, yeah, the statistics are something that's a little frustrating because we don't have spectacular ones, but it's it's pretty high. And um, 
it's hard to do the research when out in the community because of different restrictions that universities and other agencies will put on involving folks with disabilities in studies makes it even harder to do some of that some of that research right now so but we do know the numbers are really high yeah yeah and um as you're speaking there it, it cued me back to a story that you had shared with me uh, about a week ago when we first connected over the phone um and just the importance of of language um yeah. and having having the right language could you share that that story i think it's an impactful one that highlights the importance of of language and, and maybe you can go into that a bit Okay, if I'm remembering the story I told you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. I'll let you know if it's not the one I had in mind. Okay, I'll tell you tell me if it's the wrong one. Um I mean a big piece of a big piece of what we have um around language is that if if folks don't have the right language to um tell us when something happened, then how do how do you tell somebody that something happened that was bad if you don't know what you're calling? your body parts you don't have that language either verbally or in a different way so if you haven't got the language if you're an augmentative and alternative communication user or an AAC user if that language isn't included in your AAC device so the language of your body the language of disclosure the language of abuse if that's not included in those things so whether you're using an iPad or you're using PECs or you're using something else if we haven't included that stuff. Um, that's also a way for other people to have control over whether or not you disclose. Um, and that's really incredibly frustrating. And if we don't tell people what their body parts are called, and this goes for anyone, this goes for children, this goes for folks with disabilities as well. Uh, if you don't know the language of your body, then how do you tell somebody when something goes wrong? And um, so I think those are really important pieces. And I've heard a lot of stories from, um, from teachers and from caregivers and from parents and stuff about people actually disclosing, but not doing it um, in a way that we might consider to be a typical way of disclosing because they just don't have the language to do that. And then maybe it's not being heard as a disclosure. It's being heard as, oh, that's, that's cute, whatever it is you're telling me. And in fact, it's actually a disclosure. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure whether I hit the right story or not. And you can tell me if I didn't. <laughs> well, I think uh, it's not the one that I had in mind, but to, to, drive, the, okay. to drive the point home, um, the, if you could maybe share the story of your friend that was doing some work in an institution or a jail and just... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely can share that story. Um, and that, and I can certainly name her. Um, my friend Meg Hickling, who many people in um, Canada and probably around the world would know Meg's work. Uh, Meg is a former nurse who used to do sexual health in the Lower Mainland in British Columbia, where I live. And she did um, work going into prisons and working with inmates and actually teaching them sexual health. 
but she also asked them um, about how they, if they were sex offenders, how they looked for their victims and how they chose their victims. Because we know there's a process of grooming and that happens whether a victim is a child, whether that victim is an adult with a disability, whoever it is. And one of the things that she talks about that they told her was that they look for people who don't have the right language for their bodies. Because if they have the right language for their bodies, that means someone's talking to them about it someone's teaching them and they're much more likely to tell if they don't have the right language for their bodies then they're much less likely to tell because what it told um uh, predators is that they you know they're not having those conversations and so they don't have somebody who's maybe a trusted person for them to talk to and so that's always the the reason that I give to parents, whether you're talking about a child with an IDD or a child or an adult with an IDD, that those are pretty good reasons um, for wanting, you know, whoever it is you're supporting to know about their body and about how it works is simply because then they can disclose. Right. And they're less likely to be picked as a victim. Right, right. And, and that to me is... Um, I think when you told me that the first time and you told me, tell me that again, it's a, um, it's a, a very compelling uh, argument for, um, for families to buy in to educating or seeking out resources so that their loved one with an IED can become educated on sexuality. Um, and just the fact that, they're at greater risk of sexual abuse and being a, uh, a victim of sexual abuse if they simply don't have the language of um, of their their body and their their body parts to say that you know I I was touched here or or there and and to be able to understand kind of the right and wrong around that and consent and um, and all of yeah. those pieces. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to to add to that? Margaret? You used the magic word at the end there when you talked about consent. And do you want to talk about that now or do you want to talk about it later? Um, Because consent is one of the big issues around folks with with IDD. And um, the laws are different in different places. And the laws that I know best are the laws in British Columbia, where I happen to live. Mm -hmm. And um, I get a lot of folks who will say to me, well, um, you know, person X, Y, or Z isn't capable of giving consent and the, to have sexual activity. And um, the reality is that here in BC, um, that we have an adult guardianship act that says that um, you're considered capable of giving consent for personal, financial, and healthcare decisions unless we prove otherwise, and that includes sexual health. And so, there's very few people. Um, and I won't get into all of the little the legalese around it, but there's very few people who we wouldn't consider capable of giving consent, and that's different where where you live. And I haven't looked at all of the bits and pieces in Canada. I know some places in the U.S. Uh, people have to be shown to be capable of giving consent, but here in B.C. we say well folks can give consent themselves. They're adults. This is assuming you're an adult. They're an adult. And so that means that your family doesn't get to make that choice for you. And it means that your caregivers don't get to make that choice for you. And that's hard 
sometimes for families and caregivers to hear because they, um, because they do want to keep their adult children safe and they do want, you know, the right things to happen for them. But we do have to sort of be aware of that. It doesn't mean that we don't teach about consent and we don't teach about giving permission, but it does mean that uh, we can't kind of come in like a knight in shining armor and say, well, no, this is actually a choice you don't get to make because they do get to make it. Right. Yeah. And the area of legal consent yeah, is, I think, pretty gray in a lot of uh, jurisdictions. In Ontario, it's definitely different. We have, and I'm not an expert on this, but I, I do know that we have a uh, the, the legality around it is a substitute decision maker. Um, and uh, many, some, some people uh, have that enacted and it might be due to accessing supports and that, you know, and anyways, just some, um, there's a lot of conversation going on around that right now as well. But um the the legal consent piece might not be challenged until something comes up or there's a change in, you know, if mom or dad or mom and dad pass away, then that might come up when it goes to, um, you know, probate law and talking about estates and, and managing finances and stuff. So it, it might be triggered by certain things. Um, but yeah, I think it's from a legal standpoint, uh, a little bit gray. Um, depending on context and, and circumstances. Um, but again, I'm not an expert on that. I just know that. <laughs> well, here in BC, we have something called a representation agreement and mm-hmm. um, folks can enter into a rep agreement with, um, with say a sibling or a parent, but it doesn't mean that they actually get to make those legal decisions completely. It means that they can assist you in making them. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily give you complete control over um, over someone's life. And it means that if my family wants to have a rep agreement with me, then I still have to agree to that, rep- that representation agreement. Yes. And you so have to consent there's into a- the rep agreement. Yeah. 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 So consent is a pretty big, um, I, I mean, societally, it's a pretty big thing these days as well as we as we muddle through trying to um, learn about and talk about what really constitutes consent. But it's, it's, I just think it's a new thing for people to be aware of that you don't always get to make those decisions for folks. Um, and whether they make good decisions or poor decisions doesn't always mean that other people get to make them for you. Right. And I think that, you know, in this conversation, there's many different avenues we could go down. Um, I think maybe for this conversation, and and maybe it'll lead to other conversations, Margaret, um, but just to try and give some general information to the different types of audiences that listen to this podcast. So there's self-advocates, there's families, and there's supporters. So I'm wondering maybe if we can touch on each of those groups and and talk about what do they need to know or what are some of the most maybe fundamental or starting places um, around sexual health and, and education? Um, maybe we can kind of 
provide, or you can provide some maybe general information and then, um, and then, you know, everybody listening to this conversation, they probably already got something out of it, but um, just to walk away a little bit more and informed for, for each of those groups, would you be comfortable doing that? Sure. We can, we can make a stab at going to that, to that place. Okay. Uh, Who do you want to start with? Self-advocates? Yeah, let's start with self-advocates. So as a self-advocate, um, what, what do they need to know about sexual health? I mean, we talked about language, um, we talked about consent, so we don't need to double up on those, but, um, what else comes to mind? Well, I think a lot of what the self-advocates that I talk to, and that's a big chunk of what I do is, is direct service. Um, for a lot of them, it's about kind of knowing, so like knowing the basics of sexuality and sexual health and stuff like that for sure but for a lot of them it's about understanding um like what makes a healthy relationship what does a healthy relationship look like um where where might i safely go and meet somebody to have a relationship with or how can i tell if somebody you know if this is a good relationship or a bad relationship or um whatever so for a lot of self advocates it's a lot of those sort of real I don't want to call them basics because they're actually the really nuanced part of having relationships, right? Is like, how do I know that this is, that this is a good relationship? And then what some of those kind of unwritten rules around relationships are like, how many times can you text somebody in a day? How many times can you phone somebody in a day when you're completely infatuated with them? And, you know, in in an early stage of a relationship or how do you let somebody know that you're interested in them how do you ask somebody out on a date where do you go on a date what you know what happens um those kinds of things because i think that's a lot of what self-advocates will say to me like i just don't know i i i want a girlfriend or i want a boyfriend and like i just don't know how to get one and so how do you go about the process of um, being with someone. And I think for lots of them too, um, some of that conversation is around saying, well, most people don't start relationships by having intercourse or having sex. So what kind of are the stages in a relationship? Because some people don't necessarily know that and they don't, um, they don't understand that you have the right to say, well, you know, like, yeah, I just want to hold your hand for the first three dates and maybe we can kiss on the fourth or Mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that. And so sometimes it's about breaking down some of those um, pieces for self-advocates, but also that they have um, that, you know, you have the right to have relationships, but there's responsibilities that go along with relationships. And what do those responsibilities look like? And, um, you know, those bits and pieces that sort of go into that. So for me, a lot of the time that I spend with self-advocates, if, if the reason that they're coming to see me is to learn about, about sex ed and about relationships and stuff like that is actually breaking it down into, into sort of more, I don't want to say more palatable, but, but easier steps where you can sort of um, figure it out by themselves uh, to say, okay, well, this is where I'm at now, or this is maybe what I should be doing next, or I have a crush on somebody and where should I go with that? So there's a lot of that. And then when you get into the actual sex piece, it's about, um, you know, birth control, it, 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 
can be about birth control anyway. Um, it's about where can you have sex because that sort of bleeds into the families and the support people piece um, because some people say, well, you can't have sex in your group home or you can't have sex at your home share. Well, where are you supposed to have it if you can't have it in your own home um, with a consenting um, adult partner? And so those are, those are things that we often will sort of get into. I was just going to say, it depends if you can drive or not. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's not uncommon for me to have referrals for folks who are having sex in quote unquote inappropriate places. And when we sort of dice that down, often it's because they've been told that they're not allowed to have sex elsewhere or they're just not allowed to have sex period. And so then we put people at higher risk of things like getting arrested or, um, you know, doing something that's not particularly safe. And so I think those are things that we really do need to talk about and, and really sort of be up front with, um, with folks about those kinds of things. Yeah. So a question that comes up from what I, what I see and what I observe um, for people that have an an IDD is um, a desire to have that romantic partnership with someone and an absence of that. So I could see that being a common question of how do I meet someone? How do I, um, you know, where do I start? So do you have any, any thoughts or um, suggestions? Like when, when you get that question, what's your, what's your reply to that? Well, it depends a little bit on who I'm talking to, of course, but um, that, that actually sort of bleeds a little bit into the families and the supporters piece because uh, what happens is so many of the folks that I support don't have um, what what we might sort of des- describe as like natural social social opportunities where they have a chance to go out and hang out with people and spend time with folks and stuff like that. And so I will say often to supporters or paid paid caregivers or paid supporters you know, your job isn't necessarily to be that social person because you're a paid person and you might change out and you might go away. Um, But it's your job to help the folks that you're supporting in finding those social opportunities and, um, and making true and legitimate friends who aren't paid caregivers so that they have those opportunities to do that. Different places and different communities, depending on the sizes of them, have sometimes built-in social opportunities sometimes there's dances sometimes there's other things and so it's a case of figuring out what's available in different places but a lot of that as I say sort of bleeds into the families and the supporters that some of what their jobs can be to support them is to actually help people to have those opportunities where they can go out and meet new people and actually make some true legitimate friendships so that they can um, have some friends and, and things like that. So I think that's, you know, so if an individual asked me that question, we would start talking about, well, what do you do, right? Where do you go? How do you hang, you know, who do you hang out with um, and stuff like that. I'm always thrilled when a client comes in and says, you know, well, I was just like, I went for coffee with my friends and I think, well, that's wonderful because that means that they're getting out and they're doing something social and they've got some friends who are more than just paid caregivers who are helping them out um, 
in their communities. So I think that's a big piece of it because uh, paid caregivers who say, well, it's my job to be their friend. Well, no, you're paid to support people, but you're paid to help people go out and actually find some friends and to have them, have them identify social opportunities that they like and where they can go out and meet new people. Right. Yeah, of course. And uh, I think you're preaching to the choir here, definitely to me. And uh, I think likely to many listeners that the, this podcast attracts Um, and what you're suggesting is exactly in line with um, what, one of my uh, mentors, uh, Janet Cleese, would suggest uh, around providing the context or the opportunity to create relationships in ordinary settings in community and support really acting at paid support, particularly acting as a bridge to relationship, not being the relationship because supporters are yeah. going to leave. Um, doesn't matter your intentions, <laughs> your paid support, you're going to leave at some point. And, um, and then thinking through what's that hole. So if you're a friend, that's a massive hole in a trauma, right? That's kind of waiting to happen if you're, if you're the relationship. So like you're saying, creating those true friendships and, and acting support, facilitating that relationship, or maybe, maybe helping that person with an IDD to bridge um, acting as a bridge to help them to enter into relationship rather than being the relationship. Absolutely. And I've done lots of workshops that I've had full rooms of self-advocates and where they say exactly that they say, you know, you're, you're paid to work with me. And so um, you work for me, not with me, you work for me, you essentially are my employee. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it's your job to help me get the, you know, to achieve the goals that I want. And if the goals are that I want to have a social life and I want to go out and hopefully meet a partner at some point in time, then how are you going to support me to do that? Right. Without you doing the picking for me, because right. that's, that's the other piece of it, right? Is that um, the folks that we support still have to have the autonomy to choose who they want for a partner. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's some good, stuff good information in there for for self-advocates maybe we can switch to to families so um what are some of the key things that families need to know about sexuality and disability i think if you're a family and you have a child then well or an adult who didn't get this as a child then certainly that conversation that we already had about making sure that they understand about bodies and about um what's okay and what's not okay and that kind of stuff is certainly a big piece for families also that support around social stuff and things like that but i think um that piece for families that i see a lot is allowing your child, whether they're still a child or an adult child with um, an IDD, allowing them to be an adult and allowing them to grow up and not be a perpetual child because they're not. Uh, Folks have, so if you're 50 and perhaps you um, socially are maybe a little bit more delayed, you still have 50 years of life experience. And so uh, 
I hear a lot of, well, you know, but they're my child. Well, you know, but they're 40 or they're 50 or they're whatever. And so I think as families supporting, um, supporting their children, whether it's a child or whether it's a sibling, because you and I are both in positions of being adult sibling supports. And so the, that opportunity to say, so, you know, how do you need us to support you around this? Whether it's about, um, those social opportunities, whether it's about making sure that you get to the doctor on a regular basis and that sexual and reproductive health is one of the things that we talk about um, with the doctor. Uh, all of those bits and pieces, I think, are really important. And when your child, whether they're a teenager, whether they're an adult child, you know, tells you that they have a romantic interest, take some interest in it instead of shutting it down. The same as, you know, you might say to your 19 year old well invite them over for dinner right there's no reason why you can't be doing that as well and so I think that support piece is just a really big piece and not standing in the way of that and recognizing that sexual development is pretty much the same for most folks with IDD there's some syndromes and I'm not going to name them because I'll miss most of them but there are some syndromes that might delay the onset of um, sexual maturation or puberty uh, as a kid gets a little bit older but most children uh, develop and go through puberty the same as everyone else and Here's the one piece that I always say to families and to kids when I get teenagers is puberty for some kids with IDD or other disabilities can be one of the most normalizing things that's ever happened to them. And I said that once um, at a group that I was doing with a bunch of high school aged uh, self advocates. And I said, well, you know, so everybody goes through puberty. And one of the young girls in my class said, what are you talking about? And I said, what do you mean? What am I talking about? And she said, you mean everybody goes through this? And I said, yeah, you're going through it. All the other kids at your school are going through it. Your parents went through it, your grandparents, you know, um, that really cute guy at school, that really cute girl at school, everybody goes through puberty. And for them, it was this completely gobsmacking kind of experience. They said, you're really serious. And I said, yes, absolutely. And what I realized with that particular group, and that was way back when I started doing this work, um, was that this was this really normalizing kind of comment for them, because they had decided that all of these body changes and emotional changes and all this stuff that they were going through, it was just another thing that made them freaks and geeks. And all of a sudden, they were the same as everybody else. And so I make a point of telling all the teenagers I work with. And sometimes I need to teach some of the adults I work with about what actually happened during puberty, even if it was 15 or 20 years ago, because they don't really ever, they've never known because no one's ever explained it to them. And so I think that's a big piece for families to, to get to is that puberty and sexual development and sexual desire and all of those things, that's just like the normal part of your kid. That's the part that every kid or adult has. And it's something that we need to celebrate rather than say, oh my gosh, this is just another layer. This has nothing to do with whether they have IDD or some other disability. This is part of what makes everybody human is the sexual part of us. Mm. 
Yeah, that's a really important point. And it reminds me of uh, a quote or a saying that uh, Selena Blake shared with me. And it was a maybe some parenting advice that she had received that struck her. And it was, it's not about letting your your child or your adult child go. It's about letting them grow. And yeah. you, you use that language as well, like letting them, letting them grow. Um, and, and the piece around, you know, the normalization, right? Everybody, we're all human and we all go through these, um, you know, these changes within our, our bodies. And a, a question that came up for me around those changes is around um, menstruation. Is there anything particularly around menstruation that that um, that comes into into your work and whether that's education or I know that you know there's uh, the term period poverty. So um, people that don't have the means to buy the proper menstruation products and and whatnot. And I know that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities often don't have a lot of money and they, they can live near that, that poverty line. So I could see that coming up as um, a challenge for, for many people. Um, is there anything that, that um, you'd be able to share around that? That's interesting because it's not something that I hear uh, my clients talking about that. And so I'm suspecting that in many instances, there's supporters or families that if, if money is the issue that, things like that just do get dealt with. I think the piece around menstruation is that we have, well, I mean, for many years, we sterilized women, um, not specifically because of menstruation, but partly uh, because we said it would be bad for them to have babies. And then if we sterilized them, then they didn't menstruate. And so we didn't have to deal with any of it. Um, I think there's still some degree of that, that, that can go on where sometimes uh, women and teens will get put on uh, different kinds of birth control to manage menstrual periods because people, uh, families or caregivers or whomever feel that it's difficult to teach how to manage menstruation. Um, I've done it. I've taught it to clients who are um, not functioning as high as some others. So some who might've found it a little more challenging and I've talked with people at schools and stuff like that. And so, you know, we can teach menstrual management. And so I think for for me, um, the piece about menstrual management, when we, when we do it with birth control is um, the secondary piece that I've heard some folks say, not lots, but I have heard it um, where people will say, well, then they're also protected in case somebody abuses them. And my, my sort of horrified response to that always is, 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 does that make it okay? Just because someone, you know, that a woman wouldn't get pregnant if someone sexually assaulted her simply because we have her on birth control. We're not, we're not looking at the, well, we should be keeping her safe from the get-go and um, addressing the trauma of what might happen if someone was sexually assaulted. So I just, I don't know. I think it's one of those ones where we have to be really thoughtful about um, the the whys and um, why we choose to 
to do um, chemical management of menstruation for for some girls. And um, so, yeah, period poverty isn't the isn't what comes up around menstruation for for me in my practice anyway. It mm-hmm. it may well for lots of for some folks, but I haven't um, had it sort of be something that people have spoken with me about and said this is something I'm struggling with. Right. It's more about the management side of things. It's, it sounds like, and do you see the consent issue coming up around that management side of menstruation? So like would a family say, you know, yes, you need to be, you know, chemically managing your, your menstruation and maybe the individual just goes along with it. Um, or what do you see there? Definitely. I've seen, I've seen it happen. I've seen people told essentially falsehoods about what it is that they're going to see their doctor about if they're using say Depo-Provera, which is uh, an injectable that you get every three months. Um, I've seen people told that it's for other reasons and uh, uh, things like that. And so I think that again, if we're doing the education piece, uh, starting when they're younger and we're going back and saying, sorry, we missed this. And, you know, we need to do this now. I think that, uh, that the consent piece is definitely one of those pieces there. And I think that family doctors struggle. This is not a critique of family doctors, but I think family doctors struggle sometimes with knowing how to ensure that they have consent or if it's a teen and a parent is still legally able to give consent, uh, do they have actual consent over um, making those kinds of decisions? And how do you determine that with some, with some, folks that we support, especially if uh, they don't communicate verbally, how do we do that and make those determinations? And those are hard, those are hard things. I'm not suggesting that they're easy. I think what we tend to do in this business is we tend to do things that are timely. So we don't always um, take the time that we need to make sure that people fully understand we don't take the time to make sure that people have fully consented and we don't take the time for them to fully process uh, what's going on. And I think that that's one of the pieces that's missing a lot in just in the disability business in general um, is that we don't always take the time that we need to do things uh carefully and thoughtfully. And I always like to use the word deliberately. I don't know that we always do things um, very deliberately. I think we just do them because we've always done them. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, as we've talked about just the stigma around sexuality and disability, and then I think just the general stigma around menstruation that we have in our Western culture or many cultures around the world, right. It's, you know, there's a, a, double impact on having those conversations around, you know, sexual health, menstruation and IDD, right? Um, So hopefully this conversation helps more people to have the conversation. So yeah, I appreciate you sharing that, Margaret. Um, So, okay, so we covered um, self-advocates, we covered families. Um, Now, what about supporters or um, service providers? What, What do they need to know when it comes to sexuality and IDD? Oh, lots of stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I've already done a little rant on, on, you know, in terms of what their jobs are around support. I 
I think one of the big things, and it's one of the pieces that I've been doing over this past winter, um, is agencies that are doing support for folks with IDD need to actually have a sexual health policy. Because part of what happens when we have policy is it means that everyone is dealing with things in a similar manner. It means that things are transparent and they're not opaque and you don't have perhaps one paid care provider going off the deep end and doing some stuff that's just not okay um, and someone else not addressing something at all. And I think the the piece for for supporters, so we need a sexual health policy. And the other piece around that inherent in that is it helps to address the fact that we all walk into our jobs with um, our own sets of values. And it's not okay for me to say to my clients, well, here's what I think you should do because this is what my value set is. And I've seen over the years, it's getting better. It's getting way better. But over the years, I've seen an awful lot of, well, that's not what I believe. So that's not what the person that I can, that I support, they're essentially not allowed to believe that they're not allowed to have a different value set than me. And I think that's one, it's goofy, but two, it's, confusing because if you were someone with an IDD and you have five different supporters, five different people from within an agency or across agencies who give you different support, if everyone is allowed to tell you what their values are around um, their sexual health and, and, you know, and your relationships and all of that kind of stuff, it's really confusing. So who am I supposed to listen to? And so when we won, I think um, supporters and caregivers need to identify what their values are and they need to identify when they get in the way. Um, They need to be able to say, okay, this is something that I believe, but that's not necessarily what my client believes. And, and, you know, I need to shelve that when I walk through the door at work. And I think um, sexual health policies within agencies, particularly large agencies, um, but I think within all agencies that are providing um, any kind of care, particularly housing and potentially personal care, if you don't have a sexual health policy, then everybody's going to do it differently and you're not going to like how some people do it. And other people are going to do an amazing job and you're going to say, this is fabulous, but it doesn't make it so that everybody does that. And so that you have some some stuff where it's it's laid out. And so you've also done your homework on, so what are the, what are the legal ramifications around X, Y, and Z? Um, how do we do this? How do we approach this? Um, What are our views on our adult clients and pornography? What are our views on, um, you know, all those different pieces? And it's not necessarily what are our views and this is what we're teaching them, but it's like, so here's what our principles are and here's what our policy says. And I hear this from frontline workers when I do workshops and I'll say, well, you know, here's how you could be supporting the folks that you work with. And sometimes what I get back from them is, but I don't feel safe doing that because my agency doesn't have a policy on it. And so I feel like I could get my knuckles wrapped if I support someone um, in, you know, getting birth control, buying condoms, doing whatever. I had a woman once who said that she did independent supported living with someone. And she said, and I can't, 
help them buy condoms when we go grocery shopping. So we go past them in the aisle and I go, and there would be the condom aisle. And then we kind of keep going. And she said, but they need them because of, you know, um, they were in relationship or whatever. And she said, and I feel like I'm letting them down. But she said, but I can't, I feel like I'll lose my job if I, if I step outside that line. And so agencies really need to stop and think about that. Doing a sexual health and relationship policy is not simple. It's, it's pretty complex. There's lots of things that you need to think about, but I also think it's a really um, good way for agencies to actually sit down and say, so um, what are the principles that are guiding the decisions that we're making around this? And how do we support our staff? And how do we support our self-advocates? And it's about what are the rights and responsibilities of both? What are the rights and responsibilities of your staff? And what are the rights and responsibilities of the folks that you're supporting? And so I think, you know, it, if we're looking at like, how does it really boil down to supporters? I think anybody who works for an agency that they need to go and say, so what's our sexual health policy? And it would be interesting to see how many agencies have them. Some do. And I'm not suggesting that there's none that do because lots of good agencies do have them, but lots don't. And I think it's because it can be kind of a daunting thing to do. And so we need to sort of start thinking about that. But I think the biggest piece for me, for supporters and for paid care people and um, agencies is just that piece around values, because so much of the time, our values get in the way. And our clients aren't required to have the same values that we have. And in fact, if they're adult clients, they're not required to have the same values that their families have anymore either. Right. So I think that's a big piece for me. Mm. That's a really interesting conversation. And the scenarios were running through my head as you were talking about it. (laughs) So maybe just out of, you know, personal curiosity, we can, you know, run through some of those. I'm happy to give my opinion on it. I don't know if my opinion, you know, I think you kind of alluded to a couple of them, right? So, you know, uh, a supporter helping to buy sexual health products um, or, you know, I think it becomes really interesting when you think about a group home, you have several people with IEDs living together, you know, what are the guiding principles around intercourse? What are the guiding principles around, like you suggested, you know, maybe watching pornography and, you know, when we talk about somebody's right, and we talk about consent, or we and, and we talk about um, yeah, we talk about consent. You know, it's if somebody you know consents to um, having intercourse, then and if if they're in a group home, if they have you know their own room, then in my opinion, why wouldn't they be able to have intercourse, or why wouldn't they be if it's their you know their right and they within their rights, they can make that choice to watch pornography in their room with the door shut, then, then why not? I mean, I'm curious on what your thoughts are around and maybe those two scenarios. Uh, I pretty much agree with you on those from the basics piece. And I think that's where <clears throat> policy helps a lot, particularly if you're running stuff like group homes. So what is your policy on people um, having bringing sexual partners in? And a lot of that is also around how are you um, 
living in situations with roommates, because when you're in a group home, essentially you have roommates. And so, you know, when you're a young person in a university, you have a roommate. So, or, you know, or two or three or four or 10, depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. And so people work out those kinds of arrangements, right? Yeah. You can have a partner over, but make sure that the door is closed and they're gone by eight o'clock the next morning or whatever. But I think those are those conversations that tend not to happen. Uh, and we tend to deal with things, um, more as if they're a crisis rather than saying, oh, Eric's got a new partner and wants to bring that partner home. And so how do we feel about that? I suspect that in most instances, people would sort of have the same kind of response. Well, I'd really like to meet your partner, Eric. Could they come over for dinner, um, you know, a couple of times? And then as your relationship continues, uh, yeah, do you have the right to have sex in your own room? Um, I say, yeah, probably because why wouldn't you? It's your home. It's not, it doesn't belong to the staff. And I've had that conversation with staff before too, where they've told me that I'm way out there with those views. And my response sometimes has been, um, when pushed a little far, then perhaps this isn't the right place for you to be working because it's not your job to patrol someone. Now, the conversation has come up, what happens if someone has multiple partners and brings different people home all the time? And then then there's a, a concern around safety for everyone in the home if they don't know who that person is. And so I think that's a completely different conversation that people need to have um, use the, around those. Use the parallel of like a dorm or a university, but the example you just brought up isn't that much different than what happens in a college dorm or at a university in in those experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And pornography is another one that comes up not infrequently in some of the conversations that I have with some of my self-advocates or with people who are supporting them. And I think the piece around pornography that, um, that we often have conversations around is if you're accessing porn on a computer is it's not difficult to go down the rabbit hole of um, getting into child sex abuse or child pornography, as some people call it. And so it's around um, perhaps even supporting someone to find safe websites where they can go. I, I will often say if someone's really struggling on the computer, well, you know, Playboy's been around for a long time and, and it's still around. And, it's available. And if you're an adult, it's legal. And so for some of my clients, that's the way that we'll go rather than them having access to a computer. But yes, again, pornography and use of porn is something that you're an adult and there's not a whole lot we can do about it. Are you going to serve porn at the library? No. So, you know, we, we have those kinds of conversations around that kind of stuff, because I have had clients who perhaps uh, don't have access to a computer in their house. And so they go onto public sites and um, get themselves into trouble in those instances. And so it's around what are the boundaries around that kind of stuff and that kind of behavior. But the privacy of your bedroom is the privacy of your bedroom. And when I was, you know, referring about that porn example, I don't recommend people should be 
going and, and watching porn or watching a lot of porn, I think that, you know, it messes up a lot of what, you know, sex is like in a, in a good relationship and having healthy sex and porn not being a good representation of that. Um, you can comment on that as well, but, um, but I think it still should be a person's right to decide, am I going to watch porn or am I not? Right. And, and we do have that conversation. I do have that conversation with clients where we talk about, you can go down a pretty big rabbit hole online, looking at different pornography. And so we do talk about if there's ways to know that you're somewhere where someone is getting uh, paid appropriately for their work and someone is there, um, has consented to that kind of work. And so it's it can be a bit of an interesting conversation sometimes and again i don't say oh absolutely you must go and do this but if that's where someone's at then it behooves me to have that conversation with them because otherwise where are they going to figure that out and i think that that's a big piece of what i do with the self advocates that i work with is nothing is off the table and I'm willing to talk to you about anything um, and we'll try and figure it out together. What works right. What works well for you, what's not against the law and making sure that we're, you know, that you're within the parameters of, uh, of making sure that you're not doing anything illegal Mm -hmm. and looking at those kinds of things. Because I think as long as we keep a lid on stuff and we don't talk about it, then that's when people get themselves into trouble. Right. Right. Well, Margaret, I wasn't planning and in getting into the topics of um, porn <laughs> and uh, a couple of others, but I'm glad that we have them because I think they're important. And, um, you know, hopefully us talking about them gets other people talking about them or at least thinking about it. So um, I think that's maybe a good place to um, to wrap up our, our conversation today. Um, one um, maybe important last question for you is, where can folks go to learn more? Are there any resources that that you can point to people on um, sexuality and and disability? There's there's some really good stuff out there, and I don't have it all right at my fingertips. And I'm happy to send some of it to you. There's there's some good websites just on sexuality in general, okay. and I'm happy to send some of those resources to Eric and. Um, I think that the disability stuff, if you happen to be in BC, because I'm sorry, the rest of Canada and elsewhere, um, Sunny Hill Hospital for Children um, has a, a Sunny Hill Educational Resource Center, and they have a library that we can borrow from here in BC, and they don't send it anywhere else in the country, I'm sorry. But I do send people there to look at what some of the resources are because uh, they they have a, a decent library of sexual health and disability resources. And so sometimes it's good to have a look there. Some of your agencies around in different provinces and different states, if you happen to be listening from elsewhere, have those kinds of resources available through their resource libraries. 
And because a lot of inclusion um, associations for community living or here in BC, inclusion BC, places like that, lots of them actually have libraries where they'll have some sexual health resources in them. And so there's not sort of one really wonderful clearinghouse out there where I can say this is the best place for you to go. But there's lots of things there um, if you do a little bit of searching around for them. And there's lots of people people across the country that are doing good work in this area and trying really hard. And so I think that, you know, a big shout out to them because people are doing a lot of work. I think the big piece for me is that if you think that you want to do some sexual health education with people, say in the agency that you might work for, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are curriculums out there and there are things like that out there. Right. So that people don't have to start from scratch every single time. Yeah. And if somebody really, really wants to know about something for X, Y, or Z, I'm always happy to talk to people if they shoot me an email and I'm going to give you all my contact info. Yeah, perfect. So um, send me over those resources, Margaret, and I'll include them in the show notes in the blog that goes with this podcast. And awesome. um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your practice and, um, and how you support individuals and, uh, and organizations. I can be um, contacted through my website, which is www.shadeconsulting. Shade Shade stands for sexual health and disability education. So it's shadeconsulting.ca and people can find my contact information on my website. And um, I'm happy to chat with folks about whatever. And I I feel like if I can't do something for somebody, then I'm happy to refer to someone else who I might be able to figure out with them where they need to go. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Margaret. And thank you for the important work that you do. Um, and, uh, and thanks for educating us. I learned a lot today <laughs> in our conversation and uh, <laughs> I appreciate you going all the places and um, taking uh, and, and working to answer all the questions I threw out there. So it was a, I really enjoyed our conversation and, um, and thank you. And, and uh, hopefully I get an opportunity to, uh, to maybe interview you again and ask some more questions. You're so welcome, Eric. It was really nice to chat with you too. Happy to come back anytime. Now, as we wrap up this podcast episode, I want to ask you one quick favor. I want to ask you to sign up and subscribe to the Empowering Ability podcast on your smartphone. So whether you have an Apple or an Android phone, you can do this. So if you have an Apple phone, it's just the podcast icon, the purple icon on your phone. Click on that and then type in Empowering Ability in the search empowering ability in the search and if you're on android any podcast app that you use it could be spotify or it could be podbean or it could be stitcher whatever podcast app you're using just go to your podcast app and type in empowering ability and hit subscribe and new episodes will go directly to your phone so this helps in terms of me getting you new episodes. Um, and it helps to grow the 
it helps to grow empowering abilities. So if you could stop what you're doing and go to your podcast app, type in empowering ability and hit subscribe, that would be incredible. Uh, I also want to remind you that you can subscribe. This is a different kind of subscribe. Subscribe to Empowering Ability by going to the website, empoweringability.org, and contributing your hard-earned dollars towards the development of new content, new episodes, new blogs, and the new paid content that is coming. You will get access to that by subscribing now. And you can select the level of subscription that you would like to uh, move forward with. So that's totally up to you what you would like to pay, but it's a huge benefit towards um, the development of this work, the continuation of this work. And it's also investment an investment in yourself. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, if you like this episode and you think you know someone that would benefit, please share it with them. Uh, be a part of the change to think differently about disability.